This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So I'm pleased to introduce Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce to Politics and Prose here at The Wharf. Butler is a writer and director who has directed productions including The Trump Card and Real Enemies. Coyce is an editor and writer for Slate's Culture section. In their book, The World Only Spins Forward, they discuss the importance of Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America, which, though it premiered on Broadway 25 years ago, remains more than just a landmark theatrical piece. In an oral history consisting of more than 250 people closely associated with the production, including Kushner himself, not Jared Kushner, Tony Kushner, <laughs> those people reminisce. He told us that that's really screwed up his Google News search for himself. Oh, poor guy. These people reminisce, debate, and celebrate Angels in America, which has remained impactful from 1991 through today and is now a revival on Broadway. Butler and Coyce will be joined in conversation by Glenn Weldon, the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Tonight's performance will also feature many others who will perform chapters and sections from the book. Now please join me in welcoming Isaac Butler, Dan Coyce, and Glenn Weldon, and the performers to Politics and Prose here at The Wharf. evening, everybody. Uh, so uh, the way this is going to work is I'll ask these guys questions for like 20 minutes. Then there'll be this jazz handy theater piece that uh, we've heard so much about. And then there'll be the Q&A with y'all. OK, so that's the way it's going to work. My first question to you guys, it's actually more a statement. Uh, it's really <laughs> damn it. <laughs> uh, at least we got that out of the way right at the top. <laughs> exactly. I just wanted to congratulate you on what I find to be a really singular achievement. And I, I mean this very sincerely. Uh, you somehow got theater people to talk about themselves. <laughs> it twist the screws, all right. They're such tough nuts. Yeah. Um, seriously, this is a work of editing more than anything else. So do you have any kind of estimation for how many hours of tape you guys have? Oh, well, I do know. So what we would do is we would, you know, transcribe these things, then we'd put them in these Google Docs uh, okay. so that we could both access them. And then um, at some point when the Google Doc got so full that it couldn't be scrolled anymore, yeah. we would start like a new at one. The attempt to scroll it would cause bombs to explode yeah, yeah, in the middle right. of your computer. And, and, and especially during the portion of writing this when Dan was living in Costa Rica and they, he was on like a 14.4K modem, you know, we uh, we 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 would you know so so I do know that you know it's like eight of those. It's hundreds of thousands of words of 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 interviews over the course of the the thing, and that's only the stuff that Tony told us. Uh, there's no there's there's hundreds of thousands of of words of 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 interviews that got eventually edited down into the book. Right, and and as I say, this is a feat of editing. So it's not just human lives and and theater projects have a chronology. But a chronology is a Wikipedia entry. And what you've done is shaped something. So can you talk about first the division of labor? I think a lot of people are curious about that. And then how you decided to weave things together in the way that you did. Uh, the division of labor came about pretty organically, mostly because we were both very busy with a lot of stuff during the writing of this book. And so often the person who would do the interview was the person who happened to be available at the time that the famous person or busy actor or whatever could talk to us. Right. Um, and then the division of labor for writing was because we, you know, there was, we were not trying to write in a certain voice, right? We were not like 
penning our special words on paper. We were assembling the, the voices of other people. Uh, it wasn't so hard to, to sort of get at what we thought the voice of the book should be. So we, you know, we would just claim chapters. I'd be like, I really want to write this chapter. This seems fun. I would write it. I would send it to Isaac. He would edit it. Then we would like fight for a while. Uh, and then we would close it. But it was like, it was very easy I, as, as labor, I think, in part because we weren't, we weren't feeling precious about the words. We were feeling excited about the sort of shape of the story we wanted to tell, but we weren't like married to any particular magic turn of phrase. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And then the important thing was, you know, whoever wrote a chapter or, you know, then we would send it to the other person to, to edit. So everything sort of got rewritten by whoever was the second person. Mm -hmm. And then we would, uh, once we got a big enough chunk, we would each do an edit of that chunk. So as you pass it back and forth like that, uh, what it is a sort of precious way to phrase it, but what it wants to be becomes uh -huh. very clear over the over the course of that. And if there was any dispute about what chapter a particularly great quote was in, we just punted that as long as possible and put the quote in both chapters. And then at the very, very, you know, towards the very end, we were like, okay, now we have to decide where that goes. Except for one quote. Which Dan discovered today. Which is in two chapters. <laughs> <laughs> so that sucked. Well, when you say you would, you would trade it to the other person and then they'd, uh, they'd rewrite it. We're talking about excerpts of speech, yeah. so you would shape it, you would decide what, which, what to emphasize, how would that work exactly? Uh, well, sometimes it's cutting quotes entirely, you know, right. removing material, sometimes it was adding material, and sometimes it was simply trimming where things were or reordering them. I mean, there's a particularly, just for, on a factual level, confusing part of the book to I think report out and write and edit for both of us was when they're workshopping the show at the taper right because there were so many this workshops is the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles a, a beloved theater that which was one of the first ones to present the show and uh, it was workshopped so many times that Oscar Eustace, the, who was then at the taper and is now the artistic director of the public, who ran all of those workshops, has no idea right. how many there were. And, um, you know, figuring that out was actually impossible. So, you know, we, we would try to work out those logistical things. And sometimes you'd read it through and be like, actually, this quote is about this other workshop. So it has to go later in the chapter. And, you know, so it was a lot of stuff like that. And right. the goal for the way we thought about shaping this was that we wanted these voices to be in conversation with each other. Sometimes that meant that they were augmenting the things that other people were saying, that someone would make a claim or, a, or a, a, an observation about angels and other people would back that up with their experience or their observations. But often it meant that they were arguing with each other. Angels is a play about people arguing with each other in a lot of ways. The structure of it is a series of two-person scenes, often with people debating things, matters of the heart or matters of politics. And so uh, we liked the idea of the book also reflecting a number of debates, the debates that didn't necessarily happen with two people in a room shouting at each other, uh, but that were the function of people disagreeing about the way they remember these formative experiences of their lives. Um, and and therefore telling their story as strongly as they can and discovering that other people don't necessarily agree with that story. Right. Uh, the theme of the play is change. Uh, the theme of the book is change. And uh, I was going to ask a question about uh, Tony's notes, but we are going to be doing a little uh, thing about that in a bit. Uh, but um, it seems to me that uh, some of the phrasing that's uh, applied to Tony are include, he cares very, very much. Very, very, very much. Uh, yes, that's right. He's so intense. Uh, I love Tony, but we had disagreements. Words that were words and phrases applied to George C. Wolfe, who directed the New York production. Uh, whirlwind, tsunami, force of nature. These are all very nice ways of saying they're dicks. <laughs> 
You know, I mean, the, the, the when you... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think people thought George was a dick. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, Tony is, Tony is uh, very forceful when he wants something and has an opinion about something. Uh-huh. And um, uh, he, he's, he's someone who I'm incredibly fond of. And, you know, he is someone who's very passionate. And sometimes that, that passion looks a lot like uh, yelling to you. Uh-huh. Occasionally it looks like yelling at you. And, you know, like this is, this is an incredibly um, powerful and important work that uh, everyone was being transformed by while they were working on it. Everyone was exhausted. And I think, you know, it brings out that kind of high stakes, dramatic part of each person who was involved. It's worth noting that we remain very fond of Tony because we have never put on a play with him. Right. There are many people who have worked with Tony who who love working with him and have loved that experience as difficult as it often has been and have worked with him over and over and over again. There are other people who remain traumatized by that experience years later. Uh, he is a very particular dude about his work and one of the lessons of this show is that most people who've worked with him even the ones who are traumatized by that experience happily admit that he totally earned it. Yeah. And, you know, the, I think Declan Donnellan phrases it as, we would have cheerful conversations at very high volume. There you go. You know? Yeah. Uh, there and, you and, go. And with George, I mean, you know, having interviewed George, George is, there is so, and his... Um, rhythms and way of talking were incredibly important actually in shaping what we wanted the book to be because George really there's so much coming at you at once Mm -hmm. when he talks to you because he is so brilliant and his mind is working so fast and he you know is sort of demanding through the way that he talks that you keep up with him right and you know that was that was actually really inspiring yeah and a, a lot during our conversations with him we frequently found ourselves even more so than with Tony like trying to catch up to where he was and it sort of became a like the spirit of the way we would cut uh, quotes in the book is that we wanted readers to feel like they were just catching up as they were coming along with us right. that that they were just figuring things out as we did as the book itself did yeah uh, one of the things that really comes through in the book very clearly is a sense of that the people involved in it knew how big this was potentially and you get that because of the the cacophony of voices the the synergy of voices you really get that all the way through and you don't shy away from this uh, amazing chapter about getting fired from angels in america as part of the process can you talk a little bit about that uh it, the play went through years and years and years of development from uh san francisco to los angeles to broadway with a bunch of stops in between including london and workshops in new york and uh both tony and the various directors who are in charge of it over that process let people go let people who had been dear to the play actors for whom roles had been written uh, were let go from that because they decided that they weren't working or they found someone better or they they just couldn't see it with them anymore or they just couldn't stand them anymore in some cases or they couldn't stand each other and hearing from all these actors who were so invested in this process that it had this thing that had happened to them 30 years ago and it still was a formative artistic and emotional and aesthetic experience in their life but also they were fired from it and have never gotten over it was moving to us and we thought it would be like crazy to tell this story and not include what was a a true and honest part of it for so many people who were involved in that process it it really sucked yeah uh let's talk a little bit about the the movie um the the hbo series uh movie that actually got made the, the movie that actually got made exactly uh it seems like uh the character of roy Cohn. And the real-life character of Al Pacino kind of met each other at a perfect time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and yet, watching it as a, as a queer dude, there is something about seeing this play through the scrim, knowing that 
the the actors, the director are straight. Right. I don't want to seem reductive. I don't want to police this, but some of the folks involved had that same that same thinking, right? Yeah. So there's one. A uh, gay person who is consistently on set, who's Trip Coleman, who was Michael Mike Nichols's assistant director, and is a director now. He directs on Broadway. He's got a show about to open on Broadway. Right. Uh, Lobby Hero, Kenneth Lonergan's play, and um, Trip. You know, I, when we interviewed Trip, it was kind of like, what was it like being assistant director? He was like, oh, let me tell you, my actual job was that I was the gay expert. I was the one who, when they wanted to know what cruising looked like, they were like, <laughs> Trip, what does cruising look like? You know, so so. Um, uh, uh, so they're clearly they're clearly aware of that, and there there are many people who who uh, uh, have that problem with with the movie. I do think, in terms of Al Pacino specifically, you know, a thing with Roy Cohn is uh, I was just talking to Tony about this the other day. The thing with about Ooh, Roy Cohn is um, <laughs> that Roy Cohn is himself a celebrity within the universe of Angels in America in exactly. '85 or '86. He's an incredibly famous person, and so you want to cast someone who brings that same weight. You are borrowing their persona. You are borrowing their presence. And uh, I'm not sure in 2002 that was possible to do in that movie right. w- without that person also being heterosexual because of the economics of how Hollywood work. Mm. Right, and also for the specific audience that HBO wanted to bring in for that movie, which was they wanted a broad, mixed, not exclusively gay audience, and so they wanted stars. They wanted right. to pack that movie with stars both to draw the audience they wanted and to make a kind of statement about what they thought HBO could be in the future. It was a statement that paid off, right? I mean, Meryl Streep is coming back to Big Little Lies next year, and that whole show doesn't happen if movie stars don't start thinking it's okay to be on HBO. Exactly. Uh, Two more questions. Um, So do you have a favorite passage moment in either play? I am, I mean... I'm very, very, very fond in an extremely boring and predictable way of Pryor's final speech in mm-hmm. Perestroika. It's the last thing that leaves you, you, the audience is left with at the end of the show. It's the only moment in the show in which, uh, uh, well, not the only moment, but the, the main moment in which a character we know and love addresses us directly. Um, and it's a kind of benediction for the audience and also a, a sending of the audience forth to make the world a better place and to create the kind of change in the world uh, that the play is encouraging us all to. And I just find it tremendously moving. It, it was really fun over the course of researching this book to find out from a bunch of people that they think that that speech is completely pointless and that they have cut it out of wow. that they've done. Uh, for example, the Tony Old Group Amsterdam, the revolutionary Dutch theater company who has been putting on an incredible version of Angels of America for eight or nine years now, uh, they just cut that out. They were like, I was talking to the actor who played Roy Cohn, and he just goes, oh, it's very American. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, That's it, funny. I mean, we will be citizens. That seems like such a central, important part of this play. Not to the Dutch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think they see it as too warm and sentimental. Or uh, You know, there was a touring production... Um, in the UK in 2007, directed by uh, Daniel Kramer, and I believe right. he cut that ending as as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's a lot of really like big ticket 
you know, many of them are actually, you know, we have we have whole chapters about yep. many of our favorite moments in the show, including, um, you know, the democracy in America scene with Lewis and Night Flight to San Francisco, Harper's beautiful speech at the end. I'm going to choose a really off the wall one. Please. Because what I love about this play is that um, it contains everything. So one of the things that it contains is an incredibly silly Laverne and Shirley-esque scene where Pryor and Belize go to spy yep. on Belize's now ex's new flame. Priors now. Pri- Pri- sorry, Priors now. Now X's new new fling, and there's and it is. I mean, I I it's there's there's an incredible part where Prior says that he's there because he has a, a lawsuit or you know, and and Joe looks up at him and goes, "This isn't a this is an appellate court." And Prior goes, "And I am appealing to anyone who will listen." <laughs> and just the fact that it you know, I mean, it had the fact that the play can be this brilliant play about the nature of democracy and who we're going to be and 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 all of that, and then also have like something that silly yeah. and become a farce for five minutes is astounding to yeah. me. It's worth noting that that scene was not that funny in the movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Uh, for me, it's uh, Edith Rosenberg star burns acid green. The phrase acid green gives me chills each and every time I see it. Okay, final question. What the hell are we doing next? <laughs> what is this? My acting uh, debut? What okay, um, we're going to put on a show. Uh, so... Um, we, we're, we're met with the challenge that an oral history is very difficult to read from uh, because it is in, it is in uh, uh, multiple voices. And so we thought we would take a cue from it, back when the show would, had its premiere at the Eureka Theater and Perestroika had just been written and was seven hours long. It's now a brisk three hours and change. Uh, 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 they would have these staged readings that would just go on forever and were a total mess as Tony Kushner worked out rewrites to the play. And, and so- often every night they would get new scripts with new pages and new lines or new cuts or whatever, and they would just be like, I guess this is what we're doing tonight. And so in that spirit, we uh, invited some special friends to come and read, sight unseen, I should say. We gave them their scripts like 20 minutes ago? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, so read a, a chapter of the of the book. So would you like to introduce the... Uh, oh, yeah, so um, we have uh, from the Washington Post, Rachel Manteuffel. Come on up. From Slate.com, it's a website, Mark Stern. Also from Slate.com, Jacob Brogan. Take the next one. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, uh, b- beloved star of DC stage, Kimberly Gilbert. <laughs> and an equally beloved star of DC stage, Kevin Arnold. All right, so we have a total of four mics. It's going to be two people to each two mic. Two people to a mic. Okay. Uh, this? Like a doo Like a doo Yeah, and then we have. Here, there's two. Test. Test. Yes. Yeah. Hello. Okay. So this uh, section that we're reading is uh, an excerpt from the chapter about the national tour of Angels in America, which happened in 1994 and 1995. We wanted to read this part um, in first of all because this was the way that much of America first came in contact with the play. You know, not everyone could afford to go to New York and see the show. Not everyone caught the workshop in San Francisco. Um, But uh, this play traveled around the country for two years for 370 performances um, all over, you know, played like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and just small towns and mid-sized cities all over the place. Uh, And it was like a, a, a tremendous, amazing thing. Also, we wanted to read it because it has a wicked burn on Washington, (laughs) D.C. All right. So, ready, everyone? 
Yes. Please sure. definitely speak into your mics when you uh, when it gets to you. Uh, uh, here we go. Tom Viertel, producer of the national tour, 1993 to 1995. Touring Broadway plays wasn't common, but we knew when Millennium Approaches won the Pulitzer and the Tony that we had a chance. Tony Kushner. George Wolfe was going to spend the year he took directing Angels, but after that, he was going to go and run the public theater, which is a very, very, very big job. And he said, I'm not going to do a national tour. I can't do it. Viertel. It could be a tour that like presented the Broadway production, which was very grand and quite expensive. It would never recoup. Kushner. I loved Michael Mayer's production of Perestroika that he'd done at NYU. And Michael is one of my closest friends. So I asked Margot Lyon to go see that production of Perestroika. Margot Lyon, producer in New York, and of national tour in 1993 to 1995. I loved it. I loved it because it was poor theater. <laughs> it didn't have the bells and whistles of the Broadway show. Michael Mayer, director of national tour 1994 through 1995. She was offering me the best job in the world at the time to take that play to America. I actually couldn't believe what she was saying. I remember leaving the Dujamson and thinking, you know, that was really sweet of her to say. I really never thought it was going to happen. Reg Flowers, Belize and the national tour 1994 to 1995. Yeah, I thought America was going to reject Angels in America. There were definitely places where it would be well received, like going back to San Francisco, maybe in LA, maybe DC, <laughs> maybe Chicago, but would it play anywhere else? Uh, Viertel, I didn't hear that people were rejecting the show on the basis of content, though that doesn't mean they weren't thinking it. Michael Crass, costume designer of the National Tour, 1994 to 1995. Most of the South did not book the tour. Viertel. <laughs> We knew we wanted to mount the play in a small venue where we could play for a while, which was the Royal George Theater in Chicago. That gave us the opportunity to get our sea legs under us. We play six months at the Royal George and then go out on tour. Our brief to Michael Mayer and David Gallo, who designed the set, we said, it's got to be able to get out Sunday night, fit in the trucks, and get back in by Tuesday afternoon. Crash. The Broadway show had a fucking expensive set. It was a big set with big pieces gliding on. We thought we were doing something more political and authentic. Peter Birkenhead, Lewis in the National Tour. The set was spectacular, especially for Perestroika, a 3D collage of earthly junk against the upstage wall. Mayor, I wanted to bring the feeling that this was America's attic, you know? They're a repository for 20th century American cultural iconography. So it was a series of wings that were three-dimensional storage shelving units that could move on and off, and inside of all of them were the props and the iconography. There was a, a section of an old broken marquee for Judy Garland, a star is born. Crass. Perhaps our mission was pragmatic, but immediately Michael Mayer turned it more positively into a more human-driven production. We absolutely, from the very beginning, made the choice that objects and furniture would be moved by actors on purpose. Kushner. The play is not really about the scenery and the machinery. It's about the actors. You know, there were a lot of people I knew who were auditioning for the play. Birkenhead. It was the thing happening that month, so everyone was there. It was a surprisingly collegial, fun atmosphere. I'm six foot eight. <laughs> uh, and at the time, it was this really lank, leggy... Caramel-colored, not easily cast actor. I, I usually walked into auditions and either they would say, we have to cast him, or they wouldn't even take me seriously. And in my first audition, the casting director, Jay Bender, he asked, where do you think they're going to find high heels to fit you? Birkenhead. The table of people was incredibly overpopulated. Usually there are like four or five people, but I remember being like 20 people, an enormous group, including Tony and Michael and Margot Lyon. Carolyn Swift, the angel in the national tour, 1994 to 1995. 
During auditions, I just had a feeling, I had a connection with the angel that I couldn't describe. I locked eyes with the reader and I saw that I changed him in the scene and I realized, oh, this is a huge part. Kate Goring, Harper in National Tour in 1994 and 1995. Carolyn Swift is unbelievable. She herself will just change your life. Mayor, at her audition, we just thought she doesn't even need wings to fly. She is so extraordinary. Birkenhead. Carolyn Swift is a force of nature. Robbie Sella, prior on national tour. They have a wonderful insular community in Chicago. They're so proud and protective of their own. I got there a few days early because I had to find a place to live. I was meeting a real estate agent. She was showing me an apartment. And at one point she asked, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm an actor. She said, oh, do you know we're getting angels in America here in Chicago? And I was just about to say, yes, I'm in it. And she said, and you know what else? They're bringing all these actors from New York to do it. As if we don't have enough people here in Chicago who could blow it out of the water. And I was like, um, how many bedrooms does it have? Swift, there was this weird dynamic with Steppenwolf across the street. Sella, there was a pub on Halstead where everyone would go and Peter went there with some of the guys from the show, and it almost turned into a fist fight. Virtel, I told everybody when we started rehearsals, I gave a little talk, I said, this is America's Angels in America. That was New York's, but this one belongs to everyone in America. Sella, there was a lot of concern about would this play around the country. You get your flyer for Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the theater there, and it's cats, arsenic, and old lace. And there isn't always room for things that are different and difficult and challenging. I, I was a little a bit apprehensive about it. Like, who was this Michael Mayer person? I didn't know him at all. He was brilliant enough to cast me in the play. But what if that was his only stroke of brilliance? Kushner. <laughs> Michael was born out. He's a fantastic singer and has a really amazing voice. Few people know that, but he has a beautiful voice. He can really sing. Crass. Performative, dramatic, hilarious, impassioned, pained. He's very happy to throw himself on the ground and say, you guys, this sucks. What do we do? He was an actor in grad school, so he performs pain and need and thereby involves his collaborators on an emotional level, which I have enormous respect for. Birkenhead. I remember Michael saying... I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it was something like he wanted this to be the gay version. It's a gay fantasia on national themes. <laughs> so you would get the feeling of the history that gay people had lived through the years. It was important to be a gay history, not just American history. It needed to be through that lens. It started with the overture to Wizard of Oz, and at the end of Perestroika, it ended with the end of Judy at Carnegie Hall, the end of Over the Rainbow, Crass. Michael often said, you guys, it's Wizard of Oz. So my little hospital gown on Robbie Sella was blue and white gingham to look like Dorothy's dress. Kushner. One of our big bonding moments was Judy Garland, and we take our Judyism very seriously. <laughs> Crass. We were very aware that we were doing a very gay, what would now be called queer, production. The girly production in the butchest of cities, Chicago. Flowers. Tony Kushner was in the room. He was still writing. This was a play that had just won two Tony Awards. I think the day before we started rehearsal, Paris Stryker won the Tony for best play? Swift. 
We rehearsed for four months. Birkenhead. We were rehearsing both Millennium and Perestroika together at the same time. Crass, that was definitely the intention, to do the whole motherfuck right away. It was crazy. Nobody over 40 would do that ever. Kim Rubenstein, Associate Director of National Tour in 94 and 95. It was a huge thing for Michael in terms of his career and the launching of it. There was a lot of understandable anxiety. I remember a couple of nights when he was like, you have to sleep over. I'd stay over on his couch and we'd listen to Joni Mitchell and try to go to sleep. Crass, we teched 23 days. It was absolute torture. Michael had a god mic and sang Judy Garland for 23 days. We wanted to kill each other. Goring. We got a joke from Steppenwolf. The cast of Clockwork Orange sent us a congratulations card, and it was this big piece of poster board that said, while you were in tech, and it had all these world events that had taken place. Crass. So we did a run-through, and everybody in all those days of tech had forgotten that it was a funny play. It was okay. They got through it, but it was boring. Michael in notes was like, guys, it's funny. Come on. So the next night, Tony Kushner comes. They really played up the laughs. That's... How it works, you do it different ways. Find the balance. But unfortunately, Tony saw the campy night. Rubenstein, Michael was on my right and Tony was on my left. And literally after the run, I had scratch marks on my arms from both of them, scratching me with their nails. Crass, I was sitting in the balcony above him because we were all afraid of him. He filled a notebook filled. Birkenhead, I remember his yellow notepad out in the house, those yellow pages just like flipping like a fan and me thinking, oh God, what is he writing? Swift. Afterwards, he was waiting for us backstage and it was terrifying because he was not pleased with what we had done. The dressing rooms and the Royal George were down below and kind of across from each other and a little hallway between them. He was in the hallway and every single actor that came off stage to the hallway, he went, beckons. <laughs> Come here. To me, he said, why did you throw away all your original instincts as the angel? Those were the instincts I cast you for. You have to go back to that. Rubenstein, that night Tony was on a rampage and Michael was cowering in a corner. Mayor, oh boy. I just remember being in the hotel room with Tony getting his notes until well into the morning. I just remember him sitting there in some hotel room in Chicago looking completely catatonic and not able at some point to respond anymore. Mayor, I've never in all my years, I haven't had note sessions like that with any other writer, never. Rubenstein, we went to Tony's hotel room and put on robes. I think we were there all night and ordered room service. Mayor, there were some big things. I hate that, I hate the staging, change it all. I realized very quickly that there was nothing worth fighting for because he had his position pretty set. Kushner, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> I was very hard on Michael. Rubenstein, I remember thinking, I cannot believe this man who is being so mean wrote Angels in America. <laughs> and then, in the course of the evening, talking about it, he transformed. He became like a rabbi in front of our eyes. He started talking in this much larger way. To me, it was a great revelation of what the play is about. We are our human selves struggling on the earth. And there is this part of us that is part of God, divine, and we struggle with the finite and the infinite. I remember him talking about the Hebrew tree of life and that some people are born at one of the higher sephirotes. 
a higher level, higher on the tree, and that sometimes they are given more exquisite and extraordinary challenges because they are higher up towards the face of God. Look, it's possible he didn't use any of those exact words, but I remember his whole demeanor changed. We were all wearing these white robes, <laughs> and all of a sudden there was this light coming out of him. It was really quite extraordinary. Swift. The next morning, a very brave Michael Mayer stood in front of us. He said, guys, it's my fault. I led you astray. We have to go back to our original instincts. It's my bad. It was so brave. We all loved Michael anyhow, but that day he became our hero. Mayor. Oh, that's incredibly sweet. I just realized this has to be done. It was my work that needed to be addressed, not theirs. Swift. Michael doing that saved the show. Crass, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible weekend. Tony was reacting as Tony should with deep specificity, but kind of to a false event. So I think some of the camp, and I use that word reservedly, maybe fun, <coughs> silliness, some of that was cut before it had really been tried. Michael had more joy in his mind than what wound up on stage. Goring, I needed to make a big adjustment to let go of the humor. It's not about the humor. It's about this individual's very real pain and concerns. Crass, I had Harper in Antarctica dressed in a Sonia Henney ice skating outfit, a coat with fur trim, <laughs> stuff like that. Tony was offended, <laughs> mad. It was simply gone. He thought, I believe, that it did not take her or that moment seriously. That was cut without discussion. <laughs> Swift, Michael wanted me to be a lot funnier as the angel, and I could never do it. So for me to be able to go back to instinct and, and play her as a broken-hearted woman, that was a huge relief. Crass, he was Tony's girlfriend. Those guys were at least best friends in the silliest, most fun ways. We knew they went shopping together, they laughed together, they had, you know, silliness as their intimacy. Kushner, but we had to work out a different kind of relationship. That was sort of complicated, and it was my baby. It's hard, playwrights and directors. It's just a very hard relationship. Crass. We knew from the beginning that doing a national tour of that play was hugely important. We were very aware that we were bringing a story and a set of political thinking to people who had not heard it, who had not seen it represented, had not seen two boys kissing on stage or off. Todd Weeks, prior in national tour replacement cast. We had a bus! <laughs> we rode a bus from town to town. Up. Swift. Oh, Swift. At every new theater, we would have a new flying rehearsal. It was dicey, to be honest. We were in different theaters, and there were a couple times when we tried sharing that responsibility with someone on the local crew, and that's when I got thrown into some walls and things. That's when we realized the Flyers had to be members of our own crew. Weeks. I remember we went to Synecdoche. I, I was, I'm doing the last moment of Millennium uh, on the bed and looking up, and where I usually see Carolyn Swift hovering over me on wires ready to descend, she's not there. <laughs> I look in the wings and she's just standing there holding a portable mic wearing her full angel costume. She just mm. shrugs at me. And I realize, oh God, we don't have the fly space for her to come down. So we had all the sound effects and lights and everything, but she didn't even come out. She just delivered her line from the wings. I was so upset, so was she. As soon as the show was over, we ran out to the lobby and we gathered a makeshift audience, whoever was still there. 
we found a table in the lobby and I laid down on it as if it was a bed. She was in full costume and we did the entire scene for everyone. Just so they could see it. Birkenhead. In so many cities, we were surprised at the incredibly warm reaction we got, which says a lot about our own prejudices as sophisticated New York artists. Swift. So many mothers would come to us backstage after the show and say, my son is dying, or I just lost my son. We were still in the middle of the epidemic. We were in places where those losses hadn't been recognized. They needed to be hugged, and they needed to cry. Going, we had strangers come up to us on the street and do something better than compliment the piece. They'd tell us their stories. This person was living with AIDS. This person's heart had been broken. This person is a Mormon or Jewish or believes in angels. This person's a Democrat, a Republican, knew Roy Cohn, survived the Holocaust. They totally teach you. Audiences will teach you, especially if you hang out together for eight hours. I mean, we were like the gay Dallas Cowboys coming to town. I mean, <laughs> we were walking through the country, sprinkling this magic dust that made it okay to celebrate your identity. Goring, we had a few places where there were, that, where there were people outside protesting, not nearly as many as I would have thought. We did have a few, which was very exciting. <laughs> Weeks. We were in Clearwater, Florida, and we were told we had to go in under police escort. There had been threats. I was of two minds. A, oh my God, theater used to cause riots. This is what theater is about. The other side, I didn't sign up for this. Swift. They had weapons checkpoints set up. One of the security guards said, we're here to protect the fucking faggots. And somebody on the crew overheard that and the guard was immediately fired by our very gay company manager. Weeks. Someone was protesting in the bitter cold, I think in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was the Phelps family, but I don't quite remember. Swift. Yeah, it was Fred Phelps. It was Lawrence, Kansas. We arrived for our sound check, and it was about 10 degrees below, and he had his little children with him, and they were bundled in their snowsuits and shivering, and they had their little signs reading, Faggots Burn in Hell. Weeks. Carolyn Swift went out with soup. There was no irony in that. She was truly an angel. She was concerned they were freezing out there. I asked him, won't you let your kids come in and warm up in the lobby? I've never seen such a face of hatred as he showed me. Birkenhead. DC felt less like a negative reaction than an emotionally stunted one. <laughs> Sella. One day, when Pryor revealed his Kaposi sarcoma lesion to Lewis, someone stood up in the Kennedy Center and yelled, Why don't you die already? And someone else yells, Why don't you shut up? <laughs> and there was a kerfuffle, and he was escorted out. Imagine. Birkenhead. At the party at the Kennedy Center, Donna Shalala and Ted Koppel talked to me. <laughs> Usually the reaction we get was quite emotional. You know, people would come up to us and grab us by the hand and tell us their life stories. But Koppel asked me, so how do you feel about gays in the military? And I'm like, did you see the play? <laughs> Flowers. <clears throat> I met my husband on the tour. My husband had seen the show in Chicago and had only recently come out to his parents. My husband's from Columbus, Ohio, which happened to be one of the last stops on the tour. And by the time we got to Columbus, he had graduated from the University of Chicago and was back home. He was a teacher, 
as vanilla ice cream as they come, and he brought his mother to see the show. And a few days later, I was sitting in a coffee shop in, in the gay neighborhood, um, the short north. We found this little tiny gay neighborhood in every town we visited. So it was a snowy day, and this man walked in, and his face lit up. It was so beautiful. <laughs> Birkenhead. I do remember a kind of weariness set in. Eight people is a pretty small cast. It's not like a musical. We all really felt like we loved each other, but there was a feeling like, well, here he is again. Rubenstein. And also, I agree with Gilbert. It's a hard play to do even for a regular run. It requires everything you have, stamina in voice, in body, in the spirit, in the heart, in the mind. You have to be stable, but you have to fall apart every night. It was pretty intense sometimes. People were losing their minds about little things. Flowers. Clearly, it's not like there was never a fight, but I would say, hands down, that it was an amazingly loving group of people across the board. Birkenhead. We were in an elevator in the Kennedy Center, going up to the rooftop restaurant, and the doors closed, and it was just the eight of us. And we hadn't been together in that configuration for a really long time. And Carolyn just said, oh, look, it's us. And we had the Mary Tyler Moore Show group hug. Please give an extra round of applause for our readers. All right, I think you guys are going to do the Q&A, yeah? Audience Q&A, right? Yeah, okay, here's the screen. over, thank you. So I'm going to be passing this microphone around if anybody has any questions. So you can raise your hand. There we go. Uh, I think the uh, character of Roy Cohn is really interesting. And by the way, he said he claimed he was not gay. Uh, he in fact, one of my favorite lines in the play is, you know, I'm not gay. I just like to fuck men. Right. <coughs> and, I'm a uh, heterosexual man yeah. who likes to fuck men. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I think the best person who played that, that I saw at least, was in the new, original New York production. And Jim Jorgensen here in town was almost as good. And the guy in the Kennedy Center tra traveling production was horrible. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Uh, you'll, you'll notice we don't have any quotes from him uh, in that section. He, not because, I mean, neither of us saw that performance. It's no judgment on his no, performance. But he did not uh, respond to our emails or entreaties. So, so say whatever you want. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Roy Cohn is an amazing character and one who, uh, the older the play gets, makes the play, I think, seem more and more like a kind of Shakespearean history play that has its foot in a certain era, but in fact we sort of get now that it has something to say probably to people for 300 years. Does anybody else have a question in the audience? You can raise your hand. While people were thinking, I actually, um, I was wondering if you could talk about the, the Charlotte production. Sure. I grew up in Charlotte. Oh yeah. I was taught by Alan Poindexter. Really? Who was the, if for people who don't know, was the guy who gets naked on stage and- He, was, he played Pryor and the production was apparently an, an incredible actor. Yes, he's, he was amazing. So I was just wondering if you could talk about the controversies around that production. Yeah, sure. So um, that, that's, I mean, it's a, the, you know, it's a chapter of the book, but I'll, I'll try to talk about it briefly. I mean, it's a really fascinating episode in this play's history that it goes out into the world and the world has its reaction to it. And the world's reaction to it in Charlotte was that a um, right-wing Christian organization called the Concerned 
Charlatans, led by the Reverend Joe Chambers, who was most famous at that point for um, saying that Barney was an emissary of the devil. Um, I mean, that's the, you know, uh, um, uh, and when Tony told, when Tony said that to us in an interview, I was like, uh, we should fact check that. And then I, I Googled him, true. and it's the first Google thing is, <laughs> you know, Reverend Joseph Chambers. The, anyway, so, um, uh, so he led this group called the Concerned Charlatans, and they wanted to get the show shut down. Now, you can't just like shut a show down, but um, full frontal nudity is illegal in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they tried to get it shut down on, on those grounds, but they ran into two problems. One is that because of the First Amendment, you can't just like uh, sh shut down a work of art that has nudity in it. And then the, uh, the, the second thing is the show hadn't opened yet, so it was prior restraint. And so they um, got this sort of last minute court order to um, uh, keep the make sure that the play could go on and they served restraining orders to like every person who right. worked said, in the state government in uh, Charlotte. The guy we talked to said that he, he they were painting with a shotgun, not a pistol. So they just basically thought of anyone who maybe could show up and shut them down like that like the liquor board and the state police and the county police and the city police and they just serve them all and they you know they got the ruling at 4:58 p.m. the day the show was supposed to open right before the court closed at 5 and then just fanned out across the county to serve everyone they possibly could and the show went on and and I but I think the thing that makes it a very sort of um, uh, prescient story for what's going on next is or what's going on in, in in our moment is what happened next which is they realized they couldn't just ban the show so what they did was they cut all funding to the state arts board they cut all uh, state government arts funding but that also funded museums that funded children's shows that funded educational outreach and they 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 cut it and uh, then a few years later the people who voted to cut it were voted out and new people came in and they they voted it back in but it had this huge it actually had a huge chilling effect on the on the arts in in Charlotte that I from the people we talked to continues to this day right so they reinstated the funding but then it became subject to a community board of discussion which included like some of the concerned charlatans. There were and only 12 of them, so yeah, a few yeah. of the concerned charlatans. Right, a few of the concerned charlatans, 30% of the concerned charlatans. Uh, and it meant that everything that was going to be, you know, uh, funded by this board suddenly had this, like, gang of yahoos arguing about it. Yeah. Anybody have a question? We answered everything. Great job, team. <laughs> Great work. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we have books for sale over at the register. Uh, Isaac and Dan will be up here signing. So if you want to grab a book, you can meet them back up here. Thank can, you, everybody, for coming out. Can we also please give it up for Glenn Weldon, who led yeah. this Q&A? Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.